Luke chapter 14. And let's look at this together. We're going to look at verse number 25. We're going to read down through verse 33. The Bible reads like this. It says, Now the great multitudes went with him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation, he is not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to make war against another king, does not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him? him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace so likewise whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple father thank you so much for the word of God tonight lord make it clear to us give us ears to hear in Jesus name amen um, tonight, we're going to continue um, our series, What's Up With That? We've been looking at some of the racier, more controversial statements in the New Testament. Next week, we're going to look at what the Bible says about women. And when Paul said women ought to be silent in the church, that's been a hotbed uh, conversation piece uh, for years. Um, but tonight, I want to look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, basically in verse 26, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and his father, and he says his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And so I've entitled the teaching tonight, Hate My Family? Because how many of you know that's a strong statement? And so tonight we're going to look at it and see exactly what Jesus was trying to to teach us. I will say this, this is not a surprise to anybody. We live in the generation of the iPhone, right? Uh, if I was to give a poll tonight, we'd probably be 50-50. Half of you would be Android people, the other half would be Apple people. Those are the biggest phone markets. But Apple is so big and you've got the iPhone, the iMac, you've got um, all of those different things, the, I, the iPad I said, the iPhone, all those different things. And one thing that they have in common is they start with I. And there's a big focus on I. And along with iPhones and iPads and those types of things, we also are the selfie generation, right? People just take pictures of themselves. You know, there, were, there was a day and a time that would be called conceited. Amen? But now we're just like, and I, I'm guilty, you know, and, and everybody wants to get the best angle of themselves. And then there was this radical invention. Whoever made this became a millionaire, billionaire if not. But the selfie stick. There's this thing that has a long cord over the side. And you can just, you know, ride your four-wheeler or your motorcycle or whatever you're doing. And you can just grab a picture with your selfie stick. Because we live in a culture that is very me-centered. What makes life easier? What makes it more palatable? What makes it more focused on me? Uh, there were days, right? There were days where people were brand loyal. Some of my, our older folks would know what I'm talking about. My great-grandfather, uh, you know, he drove Fords, and that's all he drove, right? And it doesn't matter what else came out. He was a Ford man. 
Uh, there were some people who were Chevy men, right? And it didn't matter who was doing what. See, the car dealer came in when I was talking about cars. How convenient. There are some people, Chris, who are Ford people. There are some people who are Chevy people. There are some people who are Toyota people or Honda people. And there was a day when people were brand loyal. In other words, if they, if they had a relative that worked at Walmart, then to support their relative, they only shopped at Walmart or at Brookshires, where I'm from growing up, or United here, where we live currently. Uh, you know, people were loyal to certain things. But now this, this uh, mindset of loyalty has shifted into what we call uh, consumerism. And so now it's not about loyal to the brand. It's about what's in it for me, right? Where can I get the best deal? Where can I get the best price? And it doesn't matter. You see it all the time. You may have a family member that works over here that it would benefit them for you to support, but oftentimes people will take what benefits them the best. Now, I understand we live in that world, we live in that culture, and, and certainly you have to be good stewards of your resources, but all I'm trying to say is that we live in a culture that is very me-centric. And, you know, it's what benefits us and it's what helps us feel the best. Unfortunately, that whole mentality of me-centricness has filtered into what we call Western Christianity. I want you to know something that Christianity in the Western world looks a lot different than Christianity in the Eastern world. When I talk about Western culture, I'm, I'm talking about not just America, but also parts of Europe and whatnot, where there's a very modern culture. The church looks different. The church responds different. The church feels different, acts different. Very, very different. There is a ease, if you will, in our culture that a lot of other cultures don't get to feel. Uh, I want to say it like this. There are some places in the world today where the price to be a believer is much higher than others. It's extremely higher. In fact, in the West, and I know it often feels like, it may feel like I'm picking on us, but I'm really not because I'm a part of us. So, and when I say things about the church, I need you to understand, I'm not, I'm not saying Woodward First Assembly is this way. I'm just saying the church culture in America is this way. If you turn on Christian television today, you often are, are fed these type of ideologies that if you come to Jesus, no problems, everything will be okay. Um, uh, you know, all of your situations in life will be better. You're promised ultimate peace, ultimate prosperity, perfect situations. And, and then even in our own culture, watch this, we tend to elevate our families and our personal priorities over the things of God. Now, that's where we're at today in Western culture. Now, I want to make it clear. I believe in the peace of God. I believe in biblical prosperity that teaches us that we need to believe God to have and do the will of God. And I believe in the ability of God to make all things work together for my good. But in all of this, we often miss the call of discipleship. And the call of discipleship in the Bible is come and die. We need to think about this. When Jesus called his disciples to himself... Fishermen, tax collectors, 
Paul, the apostle, who was a, a, a radical Pharisee, he calls these disciples and he says this, if any man desires to follow after me, he is to pick up his cross, deny himself, and come after me. That is the call of discipleship. It is come and die. Christianity is not accept Christ and make my life better. Christianity is give my life to Christ in exchange for his life. It's a radical change. It is a radical turnaround. I often tell people at New Year's when they make New Year's resolutions because everybody wants to be better and do better. Here's what I tell them when it comes to, to Christianity and trying to do better. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You actually need a whole new tree. Right? Following Jesus is not like getting a, a uh, ladies, let me, let me relate to you for a second. It's not like getting a new purse to match your already stunning outfit. Men, coming to Christ is not getting a new cowboy hat to match those boots. Coming to Christ is allowing him to totally transform and it's him taking the mess of our lives and exchanging with us our life for his life. The call to discipleship, to follow Christ, is a call for us to come and die. In other words, the day that we came to Christ began the funeral of our life. And I know that sounds morbid, but what I'm talking about is our will, our desires, our dreams, we lay them down at the foot of the cross. So what if I'm telling you tonight that the Jesus that the Western culture has painted is not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 10. I believe this gives us a clear picture. Matthew chapter 10. Let's look at verse 34 through 39 together. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39. Reading from the New King James Version. Here's what it says. These are the words of Jesus. Everybody say red letter. as Jesus. Here's what he says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Notice this. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, most people in American culture, Jesus just lost them right there. Because Jesus said, if you love even your own children more than me, you're not worthy to follow me. It's getting awful quiet in here tonight. But Jesus plainly tells us that there's a cost to following him. Now, I'm going to bring some truth to balance here in just a moment, so stay with me. Jesus plainly tells us there's a cost to follow him. Now, I don't know how many missionaries you know personally. Um, I don't consider myself to be a missionary, though I do missionary work. But, um, and even, even then, Kenya is not a hostile to Christian nation. Uh, although there are some predominant Muslim nations around there, which is why we've planted our school there to try to help the Kenyans reach those people. Um, but as far as um, 
parts of the world. Let me just give you a country, for example, Malaysia. In Malaysia, which is a predominantly Muslim culture, the fact that you convert to Christianity from Islam is a death sentence. It is a death sentence. Now, that means that if the government catches you after conversion, they can put you to death. How many people do you think are answering that altar call? But yet there are missionaries in the underground church where they're preaching. And here's what an altar call in Malaysia may sound like. It's a little different from here in America. Sounds something like this. Come to Christ and you might actually lose your life. Come to Christ and your wife may leave you. Come to Christ and your husband may forsake you. Come to Christ and your children may disown you. Or to children, come to Christ and your parents may disown you. That's what Jesus was meaning when he spoke in Matthew 10 because he was saying the gospel is, is counterculture. It goes against the grain. It runs through it all. See, in America, I almost think people have the mindset that they're born a Christian because grandma was one and grandpa was one and I went to church here and they went to church there. But Jesus didn't say you must be born. He said you must be born again. So becoming a Christian is about a new birth experience. And this actually was very prevalent in the early church. In fact, I'm going to blow some of your minds right here. and You don't have to agree with me. It's not doctrine. It's not heaven or hell or whatever. I personally believe the Apostle Paul was married. I believe his wife, according to church history, left him whenever he converted. The reason why I say that is because historically, uh, it would have been almost improbable for somebody to be at the level of society as a high-ranking Pharisee and not be married. I believe Paul wrote all of these things about marriage and kids and all that, not necessarily because Paul, a lot of it, he says, now this isn't the Lord, it's me. I think he was writing from personal experience. Now, that doesn't matter. Don't go home and make a doctrine out of it. A lot of theologians actually believe that way. It's, what I'm trying to say is it's more probable. The reason why in the book of Acts that they divided what they had amongst each other. You know the story they all brought to the apostles' feet and they gave it? That was not the biblical model of socialism. That did not continue forever. Uh, The Bible says if a man doesn't work, a man shouldn't eat. This was a temporary model in the beginning of the foundation of the church because a lot of these people lost their job, lost their family, lost their resources, and they found themselves starting over in life brand new as the family of God. So Jesus is simply saying that when I come, it's not just going to be peaceful, it'll cause a division, and there will be people who will find themselves enemies in their own house. Has anybody watched all of the God's Not Dead movies? Remember when the little Muslim girl got caught listening to the Bible on her, on her headphones and her father threw her out of the house and slapped her. That is more real and actually that's very mild compared to what happens in real countries where the gospel is, is very hostile against. And so I want you to know that, that for a lot of people, there's a cost that comes to following Christ. But yet, we oftentimes wonder why in our Western culture, Christianity is so weak Now, what do I mean by weak? I don't mean the message is weak. I don't mean the Bible is weak. I don't mean the blood of Christ is weak. 
But a lot of times, I think believers, think about it. How many people fall away because of offense? How, how many people, well, I'm not coming to church because so-and-so didn't shake my hand. Or I'm coming to church because I bought this decoration 50 years ago, and now they changed it, and I'm not coming anymore. It happens all the time. You see it all the time. I have friends who are pastors all over the United States, and churches are the same all over America. People just get offended over every little thing. But let me tell you, I, I can promise you in Malaysia and in China and in India and Iran where they are underground churching, none of those things are issues. Because those people have realized that there's a cost to following Christ. Now, follow me just a little bit because in uh, Luke chapter 14, Jesus makes a very, very startling statement and he reiterates it again in Matthew chapter 10. Notice what he says in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, and it, and, and it talks about you know, his, his children, his brothers and sisters in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, stop right there. You don't just need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible and study it, right? You cannot Build a doctrine off of one verse, especially a verse out of context. You need to read the whole Bible because while somebody could read this loose-leafed and say, well, I don't want to serve a God like that, you have to also remember that the same God who said this said, honor your father and your mother. And your days will be long upon the earth. It's the same God who said, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's the same God who, who talks about honoring each other. It's the same God who created the family, who believes in the family. So what was Jesus trying to say? That if we were going to be his disciple, we would have to hate our own families. What does he mean by that? Well, the answer tonight is found in the original language, when Jesus said that you're going to have to hate your mother and your father, the word hate there is the Greek word mizeo, M-I-S-E-O, mizeo, which simply means, it means to detest or to love less than. And the context of it is this, that when you look at the love that you have for your children, when you look at the love that you have towards your spouse, it ought to look like hate in comparison to the love that you have for God. You see, I'm about to say something tonight that's extremely strong. We love our families, and we should love our families, but for most people in America, their family has become their idol. It's become their idol. Their kids are before God, their spouse is before God, everything is before God. And let me tell you, anything, it doesn't matter what it is, we think idols are statues made of gold or bronze, but anything that we make... And put in a position above God is an idol. Now let me tell you something. My wife and I, we love each other. We love each other 22, almost 22 years into our relationship. More than we did when we met each other. It was puppy love when we first met. It grows, right? Love's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a commitment. And oftentimes, we'll, we'll joke, you know, it's husband and wife and whatnot. And and. We've had this conversation. I say, how much do you love me? Just say, well, I love you with my whole heart. And I say, well, I don't want you to love me with your whole heart because you're supposed to love Jesus with your whole heart. 
And of course, I know what she's saying, and we're joking back and forth, but we've had this conversation. If it comes to me or Jesus, you better pick Jesus. If it comes to me or this, you better pick Jesus. The Bible says that I am the Lord your God, and I'm a jealous God, and I'll have no other gods before me. Now, the thing is, God's not going to ask us to harm our family, hurt our family, neglect our family. In fact, the Bible says that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse off than an infidel, an unbeliever, a traitor. God is heavy on the family. He hates divorce. He hates things that tear up the family. But what God is trying to say is that if you're going to be my disciple, I'm going to have to be number one even above your family. Are you still with me tonight? You see, I love Jesus more than my family. I do. And I think that you can only love your spouse right. I think you can only love your children right when you learn to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength because the Bible says God is love. God is the perfect uh, example of love. He is unconditional love. He is the love that, that covers. He's the love that, that does not give up. He's the love that, that endures. And so when we talk about God being love, you know, we have to put God first. I got to be honest with you. In our culture today, we have it flip-flopped. And I'm not picking on anybody, but I'm just being honest. You know, it's the society that we live in. When I was growing up, when my grandparents took us to church, when my parents couldn't take us to church, we were not allowed to participate in anything at school that would conflict with Sunday or Wednesday. Wasn't an option. But the coach needs them, not on Sunday. Coach needs them, not on Wednesday. That's how we lived. That's how the average Jewish family lived in Jesus' day and still lives today as it's related to the Sabbath. Why? Because the family revolves around God. But today, God has to try to revolve around the family. Which is why today you have some families, and I'm just going to put it out there, they say they love Jesus, they love the church, but you may not see them for 10 weeks. What does that teach our children about priorities? That's not legalism. You understand, every time somebody teaches something that ruffles our little feathers, we call it legalism. But it's not legalism, it's principle. it's, It's principles to live our life by. You know, just because the Old Testament law and penalty was abolished didn't mean that the principles of the law were abolished. Jesus still tells us to love our father and mother. He still tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. God wants to be first in our lives. Amen? And in that, the priority sets itself up straight. Now now that I got through my intro, do you want me to get to the message? All right. I'm obviously passionate about this. I want to call you back to your attention to Luke chapter 14. Jesus said, now a great multitude went with him and he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother's wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yea, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
And then he goes on, and I'll I'll just reiterate this for time's sake, but in verse 28, he uses an example of a man building a tower, building a house, and going to war. He said, before you get invested in a project, right? I know our our friends here, Michelle and Rand, they're they're starting a business. And, you know, they had to get pen to paper and sit down and say, this is what it's going to cost to remodel. This is what it's going to cost to buy product. This is what it's going to cost to whatever. You, You don't just go into something like that blindly. You count the cost. Don back here is a, is, a, is a contractor and has done contract stuff. You know, if he's going to build a porch for somebody or build a house for somebody, you got to know how many nails and how many screws and how many gallons of paint. You have to know how much sheetrock you need. And, or, or if you're not the one figured out, amen, you pay somebody to figure it out, but you get the job done, you know you got to figure out what is it going to cost me. Because if you get to the plate and you don't know the cost, you're going to make a fool of yourself. And that's what the scripture's trying to teach us. He's saying when you go to war and you're about to fight a big old battle, you gotta make sure you got enough bullets for those enemies. Or you have enough soldiers to man that front line. And so he tells us that we've got to make sure that we that we have it all together. Now look at verse 25 and 26 here. I love it. He says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate. We realize that says love less or in comparison to. So here's my first point for you tonight. In our call to discipleship, number one, we must have a supreme love for Christ. Man, Christ needs to be above your spouse, above your kids, and above yourself. Jesus first. Let me ask you the question, who do you give the best parts of you to? Think about that. Who do you give the best parts of yourself to? Your downtime, your quiet time, your alone time. Who do you give the best parts of your day to? When you're in love with a spouse or the girlfriend or fiance, you want to spend time with them, right? You want to invest time in them. You, you want to take them to eat. You want to hear their conversation. You want to draw near. You want to feel the embrace. You want to do all of those things. Why? Because you're desiring intimacy and relationship with that person. You want to be close to them. And here's what Jesus is trying to say. The closeness that it takes to walk with me is above all of those things. You have to draw near to me and walk with me. Even above my own children. Above my own self. You go to the library, you go to the, most people are Amazon and Barnes and Noble online today. There's still several freestanding bookstores you can go to and, and you go and there's self-help sections and thank God for self-help. Sometimes we need to help ourselves. Amen. Anybody ever need to help yourself before? I have. We, we need to help ourselves. But guess what? Even in helping ourselves and resting and exercising and all of those things that we should do to be a good steward of the gift that God has given us, which is our person, we got to make sure that we put God above everything. We got to make sure we're not etching God out of our schedule, but rather making sure He has the first place in our lives. How many of you know? That when you put God first, everything else comes into orbit. Everything works in your marriage, 
You know, we talk about spending time with your spouse and, 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 and you know, having a date night and, and, and continuing to love each other and, and, to, and to grow together. We talk about our finances. We talk about tithing, putting your first part towards God's work first. We, we talk about the Sabbath day, and, and which for us as Christians is uh, the day we meet is on the Lord's day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, giving God the first portion. It doesn't matter what part of life it is when you give God the priority Everything else works out. We must have a supreme love for Christ. Here's the second thing. It's found in verse 27 of Luke 14. Look at this. Jesus said, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The second thing is this, is that if our call to discipleship means that we must bear our cross. A disciple must bear his cross. You're going to be hearing a lot about the cross over the next few weeks. It's the central standpoint and the cornerstone. It's the focal point of the gospel message. Jesus, I'm reading today, preparing for Sunday. And Matthew 27, you know, Jesus, you know, is, as we read last Sunday, you know, he's, Judas has sold him out for the many pieces of silver in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. He's taken before Pilate. And the crowd's chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And what happens? They, they take a crown of thorns and they place it on his head. They begin to mock and revile and they strap him to a cross. And they make, how, how cruel is it that they made him carry the cross, the very thing that would be used to end his life? I don't know if you've ever studied death by crucifixion. I always thought it was the beating that killed him, not necessarily. There was many things at play, many things at work. But they say that the number one cause of death by the cross or any type of crucifixion is asphyxiation. He struggled to breathe. And, you know, they only pierced his side because they wanted to make sure that he was dead. It's amazing things. The Bible says that if we want to be the disciple of Christ... We've got to be willing to pick up our cross. What does picking up our cross mean? It means dying to one's own will. Dying to one's own will. Say, one of the hardest things to do is to tell ourselves no. Right? Can I be honest with you? You won't be mad at me? I need you to shake your head. Oftentimes, we have no problem telling other people no. But we have great difficulty telling ourselves no. I'm not picking on anybody. I struggle with my weight my whole life. But that goes to food. It goes to sexuality. It goes to everything. We are a selfless, you know, selfish, and self, we're, we're, we're selfless when it comes to us, but we're selfish when it comes to everything else. And, and we don't like to tell ourselves no. But the cross... Is totally about self-denial. Preached about it Sunday for an hour. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. I know I got to die. I know I got to go to the cross. I know this cup of God's wrath that Isaiah spoke about is, is I'm going to have to drink this cup because that's how 
I'm going to provide reconciliation to the entire world. Lord, I, is there any other way we can do that? Can we flip a coin? Can we do something? Can, what, can, we, do, can we crucify the devil? Can we, can we do something? And, and God says, no, got to be this way. Jesus wrestled with the Lord in prayer one time, two times. He wrestled with him. And finally, what did he say? He said, if there's no other way, then nevertheless, not my will. I'm going to die to myself and your will be done. And at that moment, Jesus made up his mind to bear his cross. You know, us in this room, our cross may not be what Jesus' cross. You know, Jesus was a cross of literal death. Our, our cross may be persecution. It may be unjust hardship. It may be various things. But oftentimes I know this, that our cross to bear in life is the exact opposite of what we had planned for ourselves. I've watched young people go to college for six years, earn a degree. I had a couple in my church in Louisiana that came to be my youth pastors. They, they both went to uh, a junior college, got some credits. Then they went to um, LSU. Both of them got journalism degrees, top of their class. One of them got an internship at Sports Illustrated. The other one got an internship at Good Morning America. It's my secretary's daughter and her boyfriend. They were both set to come right out of college making high five and low six-figure salaries. Amazing writers, journalist degrees. Last year of college, both of them got called radically into ministry. They set that aside, went into ministry for another three years of school to prepare themselves, and now they are not using, to the extent that it was created for, degree that they had originally went to school with. Their parents were mad at them. They thought they were crazy. Well, I had dreams for you to do this, and I thought you were going to do that, and I thought you were going to be famous, and, and they were good at what they did. And, you know, their family didn't understand the call of God, but when you pick the cross up and you begin to walk towards the destiny that God has for you, the cross may not look good to everybody else, and it may not even look good to you, but guess what? When you carry the cross, it always pays dividends. And now they're in successful ministry, Large church, prospering, God's doing them good. And you ask them now, say, yeah, it was painful. Yeah, it was difficult. Yeah, we almost starved. Yeah, we didn't know how we were going to do it. But God. Sometimes we got to deny our dreams to follow Him. Here's the third one. We have also have to count the cost. Verse 28 of Luke 14 tells us this. He says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost. He goes on to all of those things. And then likewise, go down to verse 33. He says, likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The disciple must count the cost. Let me tell you this. You've got to do that. Here's the principle. You've got to do that on the front side of things. Do I have anybody in here tonight who's ever been in combat in war? I know, I know several in our church have, but maybe nobody tonight. John, okay. How would you like to be in the foxhole with somebody that didn't have their mind made up? Terrible. 
Somebody's in the foxhole with you, supposed to cover you, supposed to have your back. And, and then in that moment, they're like, you know, I'm not sure about this. No, you got to be sure about that before you get in the hole. In fact, they condition you so hard in the military when you're in those combat situations, you're pretty much dead before you get in the hole. And I want to submit to you that it's a morbid way to think of things, but Jesus expects that of of the disciples. You know, it's impossible for you to try to live Christ's life and you keep your life too. And that's what so many people do. That's why we have carnal Christians. They have one foot in the world and they have one foot in the kingdom of God and it just don't work. Amen. That's tough, but it's good. It doesn't work. We've got to count the cost. I'm closing with this very famous chorus. Many of you, I know you've heard this. The chorus of I have decided to follow Jesus is actually the song from the heart of a martyr whom was told that if she gave her life to Christ, they'd kill her family. Kill them. He uttered those words, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. Counted the cost. Tell you, it's not popular. But of Jesus' disciples, 12 of them he called. Judas obviously betrayed him. He was replaced. But 11 of the 12 disciples, John was the only one to escape the vat of boiling oil on the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation in around 90 AD. John was the only one to escape persecution. History records that he died an old man. But Peter, Matthias, Paul, all of the other disciples, they counted the cost. I said that to say this. One of the greatest testaments to the validity of our faith. Now, what do I say when I mean that? Or what do I mean when I say that, rather? The validity of our faith. You know, you have all types of religions of the world. People say, well, how do you know Christianity is right? You know, how do you know Buddhism is not right? Mormonism is not right. How do, how do you know? Well, there's a lot of things that you can take. And one of those is just historical validity. You know, you can go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. and find and view fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can see the archaeological findings of the walls of Jericho. You can see where they've excavated, um, uh, you know, Herod's palace and, and the very places that Jesus walked and lived. So it's, it's, it's events that really happened. We, we got all that. We see all that. That's awesome. There are some historical things that validate our faith. But one of the coolest things to me that validates our faith is something that a lot of people mislook. And that's the fact that 11 of the 12 of these disciples were willing to give their lives for testifying that they had saw a risen Messiah. Think about it. I don't know about you. I love a lot of my friends. 
but if you put a knife to my throat or a gun to my head, I'm not lying for you. I'll die for Jesus. I may not die for you, though. I love you, but I mean, you know. But the 11 of the 12 disciples would not recant their faith. Peter crucified upside down. Beaten, whipped, stoned, murdered, killed. Why? Because they counted the cross. There are some people who might say those people were failures. They died. Maybe they didn't have faith. Hebrews 11, we always read the first half of the chapter, but we don't like to read the second half. Because the second half of Hebrews 11 tells us that the world was not worthy of those people. Because they died with faith. And they didn't recant what they had seen and what they had heard. So I, so I close this tonight. Bible's closed. What did Jesus mean when he said we must hate our family? He wasn't saying neglect our family. In, in fact, the opposite. But what Jesus was trying to make a point, and he makes this point over and over and over again. In the parable of the Great Supper, he says the same thing. There's another man that came to Jesus as well, and he says, well, my father's died. I'll follow you later. And Jesus seems insensitive to us. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. What is he trying to say? Our love for Christ has to be supreme if we're going to be a disciple.